Welcome to Nana Tings. Don't forget to check out my new book, Falling Angel, Rise in Phoenix, available at Barnes and Nobles, Amazon, Target, and Kindle. Hey everyone, for today's episode, I have a cool guest. His name is Nikolai, and he is a fellow poet and is debuting his new book. So we're going to get into all of that and what inspired him to write and how it is to be a writer. I think it's really cool to talk to another poet that just self-published and, you know, see what their inspiration was in their process and make sure to listen up to find out more information about his book and everything. Okay. Bye. Hey guys, it's Antonio from Nana Tings. I have a special guest and a fellow poet. His name is Nikolai. What up? Hey, how are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. Super excited to be on the podcast. Hell yeah. Uh, We're celebrating your release of your new book. There was histrionic laughter at the clown's cadaver. So I'm excited to pick your brain on this poetry. And we talked a little bit before this podcast about when you started writing and all that. So I want to hear inspirations and everything behind this book. So let's do it. Tell me a little bit about it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So um, uh, I started working on it four years ago. right at the end, uh, right when Trump got elected was one of the first poems that got written. It was this poem called 11-9-16, which is the date of his election, because we were all like pinned to our couch in disbelief. Everybody was just like so paralyzed with fear. And um, the poem I wrote, right, was just this kind of like, it's just a a bunch of um, different like, things that essentially were, uh, I don't know, I guess I would say there were abstractions of the feelings that I was afraid of, like, okay, like, this is our country's going to be destroyed, like the Klu, the Ku Klux Klan's coming, like these, like it was, and ultimately, right, the poem itself um, is an acrostic. So it's, uh, it spells out Dave's ex machina. Right, so it's an acrostic poem that spells out deus ex machina. Um, And the reason for that is deus ex machina is this uh, idea that means um, essentially like God from machine. But what it it really means is like, it it refers to when uh, like a hand, the hand of God comes down and um, in a book or a movie and saves the hero at the last second, right? And like in a bizarre way that makes no sense to the plot usually, but it's just done because it's like all of the loose ends have to be cut up. And it's and it's kind of like that Hail Mary, right? And that's why I used that was because I always really liked the word, but also that's what it seemed like we were, we needed was um, a deus ex machina because the, it felt like the world was ending. Um, and I, I, I mean, in a lot of ways, Trump's election was both everything I thought it was going to be and worse and also not as bad as I thought it was going to be and I guess the only reason it was not as bad was because I thought everything was going to happen a lot faster yeah. and so what's crazy about like destruction and like is that you're you're still living you know what I mean like I think 
in my mind, when, when he was going to do all the things that he did, I thought that like life would stop and it didn't stop. And that was the one thing that shocked me, but what I, I am just so glad he's gone. But that, that, that four years was a really kind of tumultuous experience. And I was 19 years old when that, when I started the book and I'm 23 as I finish it. Right. And, um, coming out of it, it was, uh, it, I, I feel like I was like eight different people. And so the way I organized the book, right, is um, I organized it based on this, uh, this work by Nietzsche called Thus Spoke Zarathustra. Um, Thus Spoke Zarathustra is this, um, it's this, uh, it's this kind of parable of religion. And essentially what is really in, a really weird book, but it's really interesting. And and, and, and in it, the character Zarathustra, um, essentially God is dead, right? And so this is, and he's just rambling about, and he meets all these people and says all these really profound things and goes up to this mountain and all this stuff, right? But one of the m most profound, um, I think one of the, the most profound uh, takeaways from it is that Nietzsche's response to a meaningless existence, right? What he surmises the most effective response to a meaningless existence um, or in the face of nihilism uh, is laughter, like to laugh at the absurdity of existence, which is in, uh, is in contrast to Albert Camus, who kind of believed you had to have this stoic, um, stone-faced, like, uh, brutal resistance to it almost just be strong and just almost take a stoicism to it which is I just it's like he he, he almost wanted you to be angry at it and it's like, like you can't really that's not great advice like if people are faced with like I get it like I'll, the thing about it is I really love Albert Camus I like Le Tranger is amazing um The Plague uh, you know, he's absolutely brilliant. But and even the myth of Sisyphus, where is where he makes that um, claim. But I really liked Nietzsche better. I liked his perspective, at least, because I thought it was healthier. Um, and in the spoke Zarathustra, right, there's three stages of the soul or it is the spirit. Stage one is the camel. The camel is when you're essentially exhausted, you're beaten down, you're weary, you're dehydrated, like your your soul is beaten down by the, the harsh conditions of reality. Um, stage two is the lion. Now, once you're the lion, you've, you've kind of grown from your own experiences, but at this point, you get strength and you don't even know what to do with it and a lot of times this is where you retaliate against the world the people who hurt you the people you know what i mean you you start to you start to kind of pass the baton in ways um hurting others without meaning to oftentimes and it's because you know you're you you don't even realize you've changed um and so then the the final stage as he describes it is the the child and the child is a return to innocence and it's seeing the world in a whole new light and it's coming back to this place of being happy about the world and everything kind of glitters and um and it's it's this idea that like if you're able to recognize everything that you your childhood was missing right and be able to be that for yourself 
then you are a fully autonomous human being. And so um, the book is split into five parts. It's in the mirror, Zarathustra. Um, part two is the camel fleas from Denny's. Part three is um, the, the injured lion chases after the neon shark. Part four is the youth of bloom begins again. And part five is epigraph for the ubermensch. Um, so, so part one is was when I was experimenting and I was trying to find my voice. And so a lot of times I'm like, I got scared because I wanted to like put some of my best work in part one. But I also recognized that like, it was okay to have like things that weren't perfect there. Yeah. You know, it was okay to have um, stuff that was still a work in progress there because I, I am a work in progress. We all are. Amen. Part two. Uh, <laughs> right. And then part two is a, uh, the camel fleas from Denny's is actually in, in, in reference to the fact that I worked at Denny's as a dishwasher. Okay. Um, and so one of the poems I wrote and they're called Recla reclaimed by the sea, right. Is this poem about like being, it's like the image I saw in my mind was laying on a beach and I can't move and the waves just keep washing over my face. And it's kind of like being uh, waterboarded by the ocean. And it's, um and it was a it was a metaphor for depression because I felt like I was drowning and the final lines of the poem were um oh I said it goes um I feel very soon I'll be reclaimed from the body I was born into a deep I do not know my soul remains forlorn Poseidon shall possess me, though I'm sure of it. Yes, indeed, the ocean will collect me, still struggling to breathe. Oh, I love it. That is so strong. Right, but I, I you know, what's so funny is I actually have this concept. I want to like, if I, the truth is, I think that like this is just a stepping off point. Like I'm hoping that a lot of my own experimentalism with form and stuff will open up doors for more creative opportunities with other people who are like-minded but um or i know you're just saying about part two i i love what you just said though about um hopefully your way of writing can open up um a realm for other writers and i i agree with you on that because i feel like you know we we're talking about this before the podcast how some you know famous poets nowadays are like vague poetry it's not even like that punchline at the end or that deep wounded uh, like stanza or something like this, or a haiku that actually gets you like so shook. And also agencies. It's really hard in New York City to like find a agency that's even taking poetry right now. <laughs> yeah, they don't. And that's why I think it's great. Well, here's my whole thing is I think I really like that I'm, I self-published. I'm really excited about that. I'm, in, I'm in fully in control of everything. But, you know, the hardest part was like the formatting. Right now I'm still like... Yeah. I had to I had to resubmit my Amazon manuscript like eight times because they just keep telling me, oh, your margins are off by 0.2 millimeters. And I'm just like, I'm going to kill myself. I went through the same thing with Ingram though. So I, I work with Ingram and even my cover art didn't upload. So I, I kept my first book as just like a red cover. And now my second book that I'm working on, like I want to have like heart designs, but like I know it's going to be a pain in the ass doing the formatting of it. <laughs> you should, you should hi um, uh, hire someone to make the, jpeg format for you i wanted somebody to um i almost hired someone on fiverr to oh. format my book for me 
which is, was really helpful because I actually got beta readers and editors from Fiverr. I got like multiple people and my, my uncle's an editor and my cousin is an editor. So I was really blessed in that sense that I grew up in a family where writing was um, always in the periphery at the very least, you know? I always had people there that had a, a, a passion and were equally talented. Like my cousin's an incredible writer. She's brilliant. Um, and so uh, uh, they were able to help me a lot with it. But um, yeah, so part two, we were saying, oh, well, back to the, the opening doors creatively. Um, yeah, so when, even with that poem I was just uh, telling you before, Reclaimed by the Sea, I have like a vision for it where I really want it to be like a, like a, like a video poetry reading, but I am being waterboarded, right? And um, so it's like, like torture, right? Somebody's pouring water on you and the water splashes. And then when it splashes, um, it cuts. And then I'm on the, like on the ocean. And then the next time it cuts, it's a different place. And it's like all these different places where the water is just hitting your face. Um, because I was a video editor too. So I used to, I have a, like, I have a very like visual um, uh, mind. I do, I have like a bit of a like vision. So a lot of times I, uh, I'm writing the things I see in my mind more than just like writing things, you know? So I like just do really, uh, distinctly see them um, but the second part of my book is uh, was a reference to working at Denny's as a dishwasher and I was so depressed there um, because it felt like it was so beneath me and it was not like remotely what I was capable of um, that's what I wrote that poem about because it felt like god I'm, I'm always going to be drowning it's never going to get better you know and so that's like where it goes and the the book is uh, I describe it as an odyssey because that's what it really is is it's uh it's an odyssey it moves through uh all of these experiences ultimately um ending up in a really good place and then and then after ending up in a really good place then it ends up in an unknown place because of the state of the world it's kind of like your own personal journey is fabulous and it's great that I I did all this healing and all this stuff, but it doesn't change the fact that we're now in COVID and we're on the cusp of the precipice of an apocalypse, you know? And so um, that, that kind of, that like kind of nihilism and the real, like, and it's not real nihilism because I, I don't, I, I, I don't want to say that, but it's um that kind of realization that to some extent it's fabulous that like I, in my life, I'm the main character, but at the end of the day, I'm still nothing, <laughs> you know, like it, it's, it's still just a blip, um, is, is interesting to me. But, um, I, one of the things that I think is really interesting about my book is that I, I, I didn't have page numbers. Oh, okay. So what I did was, um, I knew I was going to forego page numbers a long time ago, but originally I was going to write a palindromic poem that went back and forth about the arbitrariness of, of the, the, the direction of the arrow of time. But the thing about palindrome is uh, that you lose a lot because of form. Like it, it requires so much uh, attention to form that like the amount that you can actually say is, is very minimal. Um, and 
so what I did was I decided to have it be, um, I, I, especially as finishing this book, I started to get like this existential um, dread about, oh, dying, right? And that's like a huge part of it. Like, why did I want to finish it before I turned 24? And it's like, because of my, I have like this fear of getting older. I have to feel like I have to do, I have to do more. I need to be, I'm always behind. I've always felt like I was behind. So I have to move faster. And because of that, um, instead of like, you know, letting that go unacknowledged, I thought maybe I should turn towards that, you know? And I'm really attracted to conceptual things. And I really like that idea of pushing, like of, of, of pushing boundaries in more ways than one, you know? Um, like a, like a, a fair number of my poems are lyrical, but some of them are confessional and some of them are abstract and, and a lot of them are surreal. And, you know, like it's the, the book really is this, it's as colorful as the cover suggests, you know? And so um, for the page numbers, what I did is I wrote my eulogy as if I would, if I were to die today, um, one word over the each page in the corner slowly. Um, and I thought like, what a good place to confront your fear of death than in a place where the numbers normally rise like age. You are so fascinating. I <laughs> like, wait, I would have never, I, I love concepts too, but I would never conceptually even think about that. Like, wow. I know, that's why I think too, I'm like, damn, like that's why I really wanna get my book in people's hands. Cause I feel like, I don't even think I, it's like arrogant as much as it is. Um, I just know that like, I'm also not neurotypical. So that I think, I think being adopted, you know, um, being adopted, being queer, being neurodivergent, you know, like these things all have contributed to me having this very much like outsider perspective. I always felt like somebody on the outside looking in. And so a lot of times, uh, like it, it was always kind of like um, a weird metaphor for it is when I was a kid, I would play, they put me in the outfield. And I would end up like dancing, <laughs> pulling grass and like, just like in la la land and the ball would go past me and I wouldn't even notice and they get mad at me. And it's cause I didn't care. I was just doing my own thing. I was so far away from everybody. If they wanted me to participate, they should have put me closer. I, you know? I think, I think that's why I like was drawn to when I met you last year. There was something about your energy that I just like was like, okay, this kid is like, I don't know, there's something fascinating about you. Yeah, you walk definitely to your own to get the drop, that's for sure. Yeah, 100%. And I, you know, I made a playlist of, so I, I you know, one of my biggest inspirations isn't writers. Um, I actually treat a lot of reading, especially with my poetry, more like, um, like wine tasting. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> I, I, I'll read a little bit. And I just, I get like, I, I read just a, like, a, like 30, 40 pages of a poet, 30, 40 pages of a poet, just enough to get a taste, to get an idea, to, to be inspired, to get what I like out of it, but not enough for where I am, have to worry about it um, heavily influencing my style. Yes. Because a lot of my writing as a taunt like, is almost, um, it's, I want to say it's automatic. I don't know what the word is. Is that automatic? Is that it? But it's basically, uh, I don't know where it comes from. Like I always, like a Fiona Apple in this interview with uh, Quentin Tarantino, they talk about the God antenna. 
where it's kind of like they they fill up their tank right they consume things and for me i consume a lot i watch a lot of movies i love foreign cinema i teach myself languages i'm teaching myself how to code right now um uh i'm i read books right and i and I, and I listen to a lot of different types of music. And so because of that, what's nice is I feel like, and I, I also have a weird obsession with cartoons. Um, so because of that, I think that it makes my, um, like the colors that I'm painting with distinctly mine. And, um, and because of that, I, and I just don't want to become like a, like a, a mockingbird where I'm just echoing what already exists. Um, I really like, like I really, I love Bjork, you know, like I love, do you like Bjork? Uh, some, some songs. <laughs> I love her. I adore her. I didn't get, it took me so long to get into her. I used to hate her music and I loved her, but I hated her music because it like hurt my head. But then I eventually I, I like understood her and I just really, what I appreciate about her is like, um, she has this album called Vespertine, which I just think she, she also has a really good understanding of beautiful words. Like, I think because it, English wasn't her first language, she probably, when she was learning the language, started to pick up, realize that certain words had beautiful sounds and got attached to them. Um, but she's a really interesting person. And so she really changed the game in a lot of ways um, because she was so determined to, like, committed to sound. She cared sonically. She was like, I want the sound to be this. I want to create soundscapes. And I, with my audiobook, I want to do the same. I have my like concept for how I want it to sound. I don't, I don't want it to just be an audiobook. Like I want, what I want to do is combine ASMR and I want to start collecting like uh, audio samples. Like I found the sound of this, um, this death moth, right? Yeah. It's, um, it's this, I think it's like an African death moth is what they're called. And they make these little squeaks and when they chirp. And I, I got the sound of that. And I was like, I love the idea of taking that sound, putting it in my audiobook somewhere and having it just be there. And people don't know what it is, but like, be, but are intrinsically somewhere inside, we feel it, you know? Yeah. And then audiobook, um, what platform or how are you recording it? I haven't done it yet, but I want to, because I want to do it right. I, I, um, I don't, I, I might just like, I have to decide, like I'll decide ultimately, but if I, cause it's like, for example, right. One of the hardest reasons with my book is if, it, if I was just reading my poems, it would be really easy, but 25 pages of the book is a micro memoir called the boy is buffering, which is about my own personal experiences. Right. And it's, <laughs> you're what? I cannot wait to read this. I am so excited. I know. So The Boy is Buffering is this really, I think it's really cool. And I know that nobody's made this, but it's called, it's about this Southern couple, right? And they invite this guy over to their house. He's a repairman. And you think they're talking about their TV, but it's revealed that they're talking about this boy. And he goes, oh, well, he's not working because he's not plugged into his sense of purpose. You've got to plug them into a sense of purpose. Artificial is fine, makes no difference, right? And they plug them in and then the power turns on and then it's all these different channels and, it, and you just read all these different channels and each channel is a memory. Wow. And so they're watching my memories 
And a lot of them are traumatic. But what I want it to be was first and foremost, like a memoir and the experience of trauma and the idea that like our trauma kind of compounds on itself because they get mad about the boy not keeps buffering, it keeps loading, right? Why does he keep loading? They're just mad. Um, and it's because uh, of all of these things that happened that like slow you down. They slow down your processor, you know, your internal processor, your brain. And so, and then on top of that, like they're fighting over the remote, right? Which is like this funny, like kind of comedic element of like, but also the idea that like you as a passive voyeur to someone else's trauma, which is a weird thing that we all want now. Like you could, I almost feel like if I didn't put that in there, I wouldn't have, nobody would even give me the chance because right now you're so expected to perform your trauma for everyone. So in the, in the book, right. That, um, Earl, in the story, Earl, it's Earl and Rita and Earl, um, he, loves musicals in fact he loves this one musical called polly turner's song and dance which is an acronym for ptsd oh wow oh yours oh that's good great <laughs> <laughs> and so i love little things like that little nuance oh yeah yeah keep going yeah <laughs> and so and so um and then they and the and so she does this whole dance number called do the drama dance but it's spelled d-r-a-u-m-a -A, like trauma with a d because it's like do the trauma dance originally it was trauma dance but i was like god it's so explicit like it's almost like i'm beating people over the head with it um and that idea of like performing your trauma and then what happens though is it it's the slow conglomeration of all these things but it ends in this high like this high note because they decide to get rid of him they get rid of him because he's still buffering but then he gets a new home with someone who doesn't mind that he takes a little longer to load and when she plugs him in when she plugs him in plugs me in right um it turns on and what's really interesting is there's a lot of like the the channel one right is this is just me and it's like my pure distillation of my own perspective and philosophy um and it's almost like a soliloquy of me like looking at the world and asking really big questions. And, and I'm climbing up this mountain throughout the, like the story. And so every time it comes back to channel one, I'm slowly further up the mountain. At the end, it's channel one, I'm at the top of the mountain. And it says, I, I, it, it's become apparent to myself that I am now ultramontane, which I love that word. It's my favorite word ever right now, which means beyond the mountains. And the idea being that like, and, and it's honestly one of the most beautiful poems I've ever written. And I'm looking on the horizon and it says I, I'm now at the crest of the Cordillera, the Cordillera being like really close to the peak. Um, and I see on the, and I said, I see on the, um, the crease of the earth's presentation, which is just a way of saying the horizon and something that's uh, undulating and a shape is undulates on the crease of the earth's presentation. Coruscant, it looks like it could be the sister of love. And when I say sister of love, what I'm thinking is hope. But I really um, like it because it, it ends in this like really high place. And then she pauses it and he goes, well, is it supposed to, he's like, 
uh, she's like, it works, Steve. And he's like, well, is it supposed to be discharging like that? And he points to the screens and there's water leaking. And yeah, and then, so she goes, yeah, that's probably normal. And it's like, <laughs> it's so beautiful. I think it's so touching. <laughs> I, yeah, I think this is so sweet. Yeah. <laughs> but, it's so, but it's so moving. I just feel like, God dang, like I really like, yeah. And it's, um, I just think it's really like that whole like a, a encapsulation of everything that happened. It gives people like this kind of like, a, it really is like a, a micro memoir, but I just really like the surrealism aspect of like, what an interesting place to put, um, to tell people your, like your story, you know? Yeah, I think that's so powerful. Yeah, and I and I don't I just don't think anyone's done that. I don't I think that I, and I think that part of the reason that a lot of my writing is uniquely mine is because that I don't I I never you, you the only way you can really break all the rules is if you never learn them in the first place. You know. So because of that, that's like what I think it is. Is I just a lot of my inspiration comes from singers. I get, I find like really strong lyricists and I'm so impressed by them. And I think to myself, like with Bjork, I'm going, how could I make something that uh, in a poem form that it, it, it achieves the same thing she did with music? How do I layer this? How do I create something that's as complicated or interesting or bizarre or whatever? And um, I think a lot of people will, I, I just think that a lot of people will either love it or hate it, but it, it ultimately, regardless, it's gonna be difficult to forget. And that's what I'm really happy about. And that's what I'm really proud about. So like, yeah, that's that's what it is. And I, I'm really excited for my next book. I want, um, I'm learning, I'm in a coding boot camp right now in Europe. So that's full time and I'm working full time. So finishing this book was really hard because it's 120 pages. So it's like, it's a book, you know? <laughs> uh, yeah and so um to me it's just like i'm uh i want to learn how to code and i, well, I want to just start pushing it the like genre in a lot of different ways and finding new places to like just do the things that no one else is doing um because i think in a lot of ways it just seems like there's a like a status quo that continually being upheld within um the literary community and the reason for that is it's kind of a bit of a circle jerk. Um, my, my, my cousin always said, yeah, it feels like it's a contest of profound thoughts. And I was like, yeah, if your focus is trying to out profound each other, how can you actually say anything worthwhile? Mm -hmm. You know, and if, if what you're saying isn't reachable to the average person, how could it really be profound? It's elitist, it's classist, it's, you know what I mean? Like if your goal is to make something that's so steeped in illusion that nobody can understand what you're saying unless they've, they've got a PhD in, in, in literature, then what, what's the point? Yeah. You're not helping people, you're helping, you're just turning on all the people who already were turned on in the first place. You're, you're, you're doing it to impress. Absolutely. And my goal isn't to impress, my goal is to help. I wanna help, I want people to read my writing and hopefully uh, hopefully, my, the, my goal is to have done, been so been myself and written as myself that other people will feel inspired to do the same and go out and break their own rules. Vulnerability is so key and I think that is what you're doing. And I 
I honestly think that's amazing. I think vulnerability inspires people to be vulnerable and break those rules, like you said, and not be afraid. Yeah, and authenticity, I think. I think, because yeah, um, yeah. uh, Emerson said this thing that genius, right? He says, you know, the thing about when one fo- follows their genius, they, um, it inspires others to do the same. The reason we like people like Cardi B and we like Car- Cara Delevingne and people like that is because when we look at them, we go, that is someone who's just being themselves. And it suddenly, it feels like they signed the permission slip for us to do the same. Like suddenly I can go be myself. Suddenly I don't have to go try to be someone other than who I am. Yeah. Like who I am is the coolest thing I could be. And I always have felt that way. And also I, I didn't have any choice. So it's uh, like, yeah. Yeah, I agree. Can you uh, go into part three, four, and five. I'm really curious to how we get into Neon Shark, but I know that's part. Oh, the, so the Neon Shark, the injured lion followed, uh, chases after the Neon Shark. So boys buffering is actually at the end of that. But um, that is essentially, a, um, what I thought about it was uh, an injured lion being me, hurt by my experiences, chasing after a non-existent creature, like a non-existent enemy of the Neon Shark a neon shark being this like monster that doesn't exist. So I am, (laughs) yeah, right. And um, so it's this idea, I think my poem titles, by the way, are are so bomb. They're Uh, so good. Yeah, there's no, I like, some of them are so good. Like I have this one poem called, um, this is in there and it's called sitting on the throne, sitting on a throne made of bones of a college dropout streams. And I was like, that's a great title. <laughs> I think that's a good title. And I, I wrote this one poem um, about, uh, and it, it, so all these poems I should get back to what I was saying is all these poems are, extri- are, are ec- extrinsically focused. Like they're, I'm looking out at the world. So instead of focusing inwards, a lot of them are me looking out at the world and critiquing it. I'm pointing things out about gun control, about like, mother nature about uh, our, our America's propensity for electing cult leaders instead of presidents. You know what I mean? Like all of these things are, it's, it's, a, it's like pure, it's, it's, it's angrier, it's more sharp, it's aggressive, it's, it's stronger in the sense that it's, it's less emotionally touching and more um, really saying something in a lot of ways. Like it operates in a, a completely different um framework whereas uh the camel fleets from denny's is really like emotional like the first section of portion is uh, i think of my book is really experimental and then it goes to some more much more vulnerable and emotional uh, injured lion spends a lot of its time being sharp and as a critique and then four um the youth of bloom begins again is uh essentially Oh, like almost like the climax and apex and it's it's the catharsis it's really really it like I, I were to describe it in light I would say it was like light blue and white like it's just it's really really like it's gratitude it's love it's appreciation and it's so it's all these that's uh, and it's reflection so it's me looking back and going what am I happy about who do I love what really matters yeah and and, and so then from there, then we hit um, epigraph for the Ubermensch, which is uh, 
which means like an epigraph being like what's written on your gravestone. And the Ubermensch is the overman. And, and, and Nietzsche describes the Ubermensch as essentially like what comes after man. Is it man in a, a more evolved state or is it whatever supersedes us? And the idea being an epigraph for the Ubermensch being like, the, I see like the, the overman, like whatever comes after us coming to our gravestone and reading a message. What are the messages I would leave them with? You know? And so, um, and so that, what, what did you say? No, I'm like thinking like what I would, that, that's deep to think about, right? Like the message. Yeah, right. right. And, and so but back to um, uh, Youth of Bloom Begins again, right? One of my favorite poems, and I think like one of the, the best in the collection is this poem called The Transfiguration of the Soul. And that came after I, I, I met this old woman at my job. Uh, she's a Russian woman. And we had a five minute conversation and she just changed my world in five minutes. And she was so casual. And she said, why don't you have a boyfriend? And I had looked at her and I was, and I was working at Metrograph and I said, oh, well, sometimes I think I'm a little bit broken. And she like stopped and she went like, and she said, no, darling, you're never broken. You just simply changed shape. Right. Wow. And I was like, <laughs> uh, damn. <laughs> I know. And then she just like left. <laughs> and I was just like, it was amazing. It, it was the skies, you know? That, that right. Yeah. It's so, so touching and so moving. And it was so like, and it was so true. And it was like, wow. Like, how many other people need to hear that? You know? A lot, actually. Hopefully, on this podcast. A lot of Right. And that's why I wanted that poem. And that's why that whole section is just me like looking back and being grateful for things. And, um, and then in over epigraph for the Ubermensch, one of the poems is called There Are No Monkeys Here, which is this really bizarre abstract poem about um, kind of creationism. So it started with this this line that I got in my head that spooked me, which was the equation to creation is written on a chalkboard once and then erased. And I just think about it as um, I, I used to study astrophysics. So um, the idea of like a scientist having the right answer and then erasing it because they doubt themselves. Yeah, well, or just that, well, so, yeah, and so that poem, um, and then what I really liked is um, I was looking at this artist, Matthew Barney, right, and he doesn't describe any of his um, art pieces as nouns, they're all verbs, and I love the idea that I'm not a noun, I'm a verb. Yes, absolutely, yeah. Like, you're, we're not noun, like, we don't just, we're not just objects, we're, we're literally in movement. And so it goes, I'm not a noun, I'm a verb, um, dying, shimmering, evolving. I am a human being. And I and I and that's when it really occurred to me, like a human being is a human existing. That's a statement, that's an as it that's a noun and a verb. That's an, an like a, a human being is literally like it I don't think a lot of people see it that way. We see it a human being as like just to think, you know what I mean? 
instead of remembering that like that's no that's a human existing and so our existence and the act of existing is wrapped up in our own personhood yeah. and the way we describe it so i thought that was really interesting and then another one was um it's called waving from the astrobleen which is uh this idea of wanting to be taken away by aliens because you're just like god everything's shit you know i mean (laughs) and then um and the final poem in the book it's really amazing that's one of like the best poems i think wrote it's the only thing that's uh i think on par with the boys buffering just because everything in the book i think is really good but uh those two poems to me are like on a completely different tier. Um, and on a tier that I wouldn't expect me to be able to replicate a hundred pages, it's just impossible. Um, but uh, that poem is called, I Reckon This Is The End. And what I really like about it is that, cause it's the last two poems are, the end is extremely fucking nigh and I reckon this is the end. And what I like about it is that, that it's self-referential to its place in the book. Like the end is extremely fucking nigh being apocalyptic, but also being referential to the fact that the end of the book is almost here. And then I reckon this is the end is about everything ending and letting go. It's about change. And, and it's, and it's a, a series of vignettes that are, um, I think quite profound and moving images. And um, one of the lines that I really like that I'm, I might put on a t-shirt and sell is, um, the light of the star Beetlejuice is, has left already and is on its way. When it finally arrives to earth, this world will not look the same. And what I like about that is I think that what a lot of people don't think about is that um, if you take the time scale that we exist on and you just use a different measurement, like everything's already gone. I have this French friend, Sean, who um, absolutely, I just love her. And she's so incredible. And she just always says, oh, it's already ashes, darling. It's all already ashes. And what she means is don't get attached to all these things because it's already uh, it's already on its way out. And I, and I, I think that is such a, a powerful, powerful, um, takeaway and I love that idea of like what what are you holding on to that you can just let go of uh and I and like even and there's even some critiques of like a lot of the people that are so scared like especially like a lot of Republicans um I feel so bad but it's just they're scared of change and it's like there's nothing you can do you can't stop you cannot stop the clock you can't do it and you, you're, you're spreading lies and you're spreading pestilence and stuff because you're trying to repair the hole of a sinking ship. Put on a life vest and swim to shore. <laughs> I snap to that. You know? I, uh, but, uh, I, I agree. Uh, while, well, we're about to wrap up in a bit. I have two more questions. I really want to know uh, what is behind the title of the book? So um, the, the title is, there was histrionic laughter at the clown's cadaver, is a little bit um, referential to the funeral. 
because that's what the poem that extends throughout is. Um, but it's more about the absurdity of existence. I think there's something intrinsically absurd about a, a, the death of a clown. And so, um, I think that uh, one of the things that um, it, that that matters is uh, it, it's just that it's about laughing at the absurdity of existence. That's pretty much what it's about. And I saw it kind of as these people at a morgue um, identifying the body of a clown and then the flower on the clown's lapel sprays water in his friend's face and then he laughs. And I don't know if that's a New Yorker comic or something or where I saw that, but um, that's what I thought of. And the histrionic laughter, histrionic meaning inappropriate. Somebody who has histrionic is just outwardly dramatic and almost inappropriately so. I respect the title choice. Okay, good meaning behind yeah. yeah. And then um, as we wrap up, I wanna just have you let the listeners know where the book's available and also what your final word would be closing out or like what you need, what message you would want to tell the world. Oh yeah, so um, the book is available on Amazon right now. The Kindle version is free for this weekend. Oh shit. <laughs> yeah, I made the Kindle version free this weekend. Um, so that's through Monday. Uh, and then I just, uh, the paperback will probably be available either Sunday or Monday. So I just have to wait for Amazon to approve that. And then that will be ready, Freddie. So um, yeah, and then my, I guess my final message would be that um, th I think that one of the things I put in my preface that I really like is there, there is no state of being, just a ghost town of becoming, a place you pass through on your way from who you were to who you are supposed to be. Damn. You amaze me, actually. I'm, I'm so happy to have you as a guest on this podcast. Um, and also, because I, I got to know who you are in, in this hour. Uh, you're so, you're, you're young, you're really young still, but you have such a brain that's um, so powerful and so conceptive and, and you're doing great things and I'm proud of you. Uh, Thank you. I, I hope to see you in the future and I really can't wait to read your book. Uh, this sounds fucking amazing, Nico. And like, keep writing, keep doing it and just kick ass. Thanks, Anthony. And yeah, uh, check it out and then tell me what you think. I will. Take it easy, okay? Peace. Talk to you later on Nana Tings.